Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Nonius Begonius Wells, and I am the creator of the show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective. I also have two floppy-eared bunnies now that we've adopted, and a geriatric chicken who uh, I just feel like every day is getting older and older, and it breaks my heart, and I, I, little, I feed her in the morning with my little hand into her little beak, and, uh, you know, that's nice, but also, you know, that's the thing, right? Everything is beautiful and terrible at the same time, and that's what, that's what life is. And speaking of life and beautiful things, today on the show, I have author, poet, Maggie Smith, not the dame, the writer, Maggie Smith, who has written many poetry books, many of them award-winning, and she has a new memoir out called You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Beautiful name for for a book, and truly, listeners, one of one of the the favorite, one of my most favorite books I've read in the last certainly this year. My favorite book I've read so far this year. And I told I told Maggie this on the show, but like I haven't done a lot of like dog ear, um, you know, sort of underlying underlining passages and taking pictures of certain passages to keep forever. I haven't done that in a while, and I did it with his book called "You Can Make This Place Beautiful." So first, just go order that from your local bookstore or go to bookshop.org and order it. It's wonderful. It'll 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 fill your heart truly, and we talk a lot about that book on the pod today. We also talk about making checklists as a way to keep everything in control. And funny thing, we talk about Maggie's childhood nickname, Checky Listy, which you'll just have to listen to find out what that means. Uh, but you know, it's right there, and it's hilarious and uh, wonderful. We also talk about intellectualizing our feelings versus feeling our feelings and why looking back at past versions of ourselves requires self-compassion and self-forgiveness. We also talk about pavement, the band, not the thing that we we walk on, but I guess you can walk on a CD um, of pavement. But if you haven't listened to pavement, classic, just, yeah, uh, what's a good album? I don't know. Slanted and Enchanted? Maybe that's an album. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've listened to pavement. I'm sorry, Maggie. I love you. Uh, any hoozles, this this episode's great. I loved it. I love chatting with Maggie. Her book, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, is out now wherever you get your books. Don't get it on Amazon. Maybe leave a review on Amazon because that helps out authors, but don't buy it on Amazon. Uh, buy it at bookshop.org or best yet, if you have a local bookstore, go there, ask them to order it if they don't have it in stock. And uh, that supports Maggie. That supports independent booksellers, which we need. Last thing I'll say is please leave a rating and review for this podcast. Again, people, most most podcasts are are like a team like a team. They're like teams of people that like edit and produce and, you know, you got the the hosts and you got the, you know, whatever. Social media people, it's just me. It's just me over here. So, a small way, the easiest simplest way you can support me and this show is to leave a rating and review. Please do that. A even better way to support me and this show and the work I do with Feely Human is to join our membership community, which is a space to be your feely self, to 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 engage with other feely humans on deeper levels, uh, engaging in vulnerability and emotional curiosity, and listening and and learning how to like deal with discomfort and and conflict and all sorts of lovely things like that. We have regular monthly expert-led workshops, and we have a feely movie club called Movies That Make Us Feel. We have weekly deep dives called Heart to Heart on various topics. As an example, this week, today's April 24th, this week, in just a couple of hours at 10 a.m. Pacific time today, uh, we have a heart to heart on the humans who've changed us. On Wednesday, this is a big one, our next Feel the Human Friends expert-led workshop is on mental health in the workplace with my friend Nicola Pierre-Smith, 
Uh, Nicola and I will be co-hosting that. And that one is available to the public for 15 bucks. It's $15 a ticket. Or if you join the community as a paid member, uh, you can join that. Uh, we also have our monthly community town hall. That's on Thursday. And then on Saturday, we have our movies that make us feel movie club on the movie, the 1992 movie, Where the Day Takes You. You've probably never never heard of this movie. I hadn't, but uh, community member Aaron brought it up and I've since watched it. I'm excited to chat about it because it's, it's, it's a very interesting and very feely movie. So that's, that's what's on the docket uh, this week for the community. Again, there, there, you can join as a free member. Those don't have access to the events, but there's tons of stuff to do and engage with. But if you want to join the community as a paid member, it's $25 a month and there's just a ton of value. I promise you. And if you can't afford $25 a month, please email me, feelyhuman at gmail.com or yumiempathy at gmail.com and I'd be happy to honor uh, whatever works for you in terms of a sliding scale. So please reach out to me if you want to join and you don't have that 25 bucks a month, I would be... I'd just love to see you in there. We need more feely humans in there. Uh, and if you have any questions about that, you can always email me as well. Yumiempathy at gmail.com or feelyhuman at gmail.com. Okay, that's enough of me blathering away. Let's let's get into this episode with author Maggie Smith, poet Maggie Smith, not the dame. Again, I mean, it would be great to have the dame on, but I am very grateful to have the beautiful writer and poet Maggie Smith on, the author of the new and wonderful, life-affirming, heart-filling memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful. Enjoy. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans, trying to be human on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. You, Me, Empathy was created so that we could be witness to our collective humanity through the lens of empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. We aim to destigmatize mental health lead fiercely with our hearts, feel our feelings without shame and judgment, and share our courageous stories so that others may feel less alone and more connected as feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a brave place designed to inspire the beauty in each of us because each of us and all of our kaleidoscopic parts makes up a magical whole that deserves to be seen. Today, I'm hoping we can make this space beautiful together because I'm here with award-winning poet, Pavement super fan and author of the new memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful. It's Maggie Smith. Hello, Maggie. <laughs> Hello. That's so true. <laughs> pavement poet and pavement super fan. <laughs> I love it. it. That's a good cross section. I, I learned, of, I only learned of pavement, uh, pavement when I met Jessica 15 years ago. So she, uh, she brought pavement into my life and I, I must thank her for that. That's a big gift to bring into someone's life, I have to say. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so Maggie, we always kick off the show with a an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? Oh, I feel a little a little stressy today, if I'm being honest. Like I I have a long list of things to do. And when I look mm -hmm. at the list and then the number of days that I have to somehow dose this across, it seems like a pretty heavy dose each day. Mm. <laughs> um, but I know from experience it'll all get done, so it's it'll be fine. But that's the like tight chest feeling you have, and you're like, "Wow, there's a lot on the list right now." Sure, I relate to that. Is yeah. it is it uh, tasks or or things associated with the book launch book stuff? Some of it, yeah, and then some of it's just like you know, parenting two kids and high school mm. scheduling for my daughter, and you know, other like 
fun personal things, but that also take up time and teaching mm. and editing. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's just a, a lot of pieces and it actually does help to list all those things. So thanks for the opportunity, because I realized that all the things are good things. Like they're all things that are opportunities that I want to do. yeah. And so if I reframe them as like, I get to do all these things over the next few days there instead of like, wow, I have to do these things. Yes. That's a little, it's a little better. None of it's drudgery. It's just, it's all, it's just a lot. It's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Opportunity, not a burden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I love that reframe. Uh, that's great. Yeah. And I, I, I relate to the, I relate to that immeasurably. I, I I think a lot of us can. It's I think list making or or sort of writing things down and and sort of making checkboxes is certainly part and parcel to capitalism. But but it's also helpful for someone like me and maybe you that that feels a little all over the place or scatterbrained at times and needs to just kind of like do one thing at a time. Otherwise, I'm just like let's do all the things all the time. You know. All the things all the time is sort of how life feels. Um, my wow. childhood nickname was Checky Listy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very <so> clever. <laughs> yeah, it was not. Um, it was not a capitalist thing for me when I was like six, making lists of everything. So yeah. I, I think it's like it's a it's like a deeply ingrained mental uh-huh. health quirk. Uh, the listing and and now it just makes life somewhat manageable. But uh-huh. yeah, it's 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 really in there. <laughs> yeah. Checky Listy, uh, <laughs> you that's that's your name henceforth, Checky Listy. Perfect. I'll take it. So what is that like when you think about little Checky Listy Maggie Smith, like what what does that mean to you? Like, how do you reflect on that now as an adult and looking back on that person? Like, what does that say about you? Oh, yeah. Well, plenty. <laughs> um, I you know, I'm the oldest of three daughters, so I have mm. like big firstborn energy. So there was Mm -hmm. definitely um, an organizational component that I found really, um, now I would say kind of soothing, you know, like in my Mm -hmm. adult brain, but I think back then it felt kind of pleasurable and normal to want to keep track of things. Uh Um, Yeah. And I, I look back at that kid and I'm like, oh yeah, you really were trying to keep everything really organized and controlled and Mm. to stay on top of all the things. And um, I don't know, I feel like a lot of adult life has been unlearning um, sort of perfectionistic tendencies Mm -hmm. and sort of hyper organizational tendencies and just kind of learning to, to let go and be more okay with not knowing things. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. I think as a kid just never felt okay. Like you had to have an answer. Yeah, and, that's um, interesting. I don't feel that way now. That's good. I like that. I, I, like I think so. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I hear this often, firstborn, you know, um, taking on maybe perhaps whether it's conscious or not, more responsibility than they need to. Yeah, I think. I think it, responsibility, and, and maybe even in my case, it wasn't much responsibility because I had a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. so I wasn't really expected to do much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's responsibility or if it's just um, you are more uh, <laughs> a container for your per, your parental, uh, your parents' anxiety, and mm-hmm. I don't know, a sort of like bucket for the the sort of achievement stuff. Sure. And so, you know, it's like with the first child, you're like, they have to do all the things and eat all the things and sleep well. And because Mm. it's a reflection on me as a parent, if they're doing well, then I'm doing well. Right. And then I think something happens with the second and I don't have more than two, but I have a feeling if I had four, the the fourth one would be feral because after the, you've kept the first one going and they turn out okay. And you realize not every missed nap is a crisis and not every refusal to try a food is like an ingrained habit that means they will never eat a healthy food in their life and it's all your fault yeah um you tend to kind of be less anxious as a person Mm. with subsequent kids um so i think a lot of it is is that stuff is my is my sense it makes sense yeah i mean especially you reflecting on that as a parent now and knowing that like hey, I, I can do this. I've been here before. 
Yeah, I'm the second born. We have I have three siblings. So my mom had my mom technically had five. Um, I had a younger sister who died of pneumonia when she was like two months old. I know. Oh my Devastating. goodness, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. I know. Oh. Um, but I, I I think about yeah, second born. I I was um maybe certainly less checky listy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was a bit more kind of like a wild, um, sensitive weirdo. Uh, for yeah. sure, the best kind. Yes. Yeah. Love those sensitive, wild, weirdos. sensitive weirdos. Those are those yeah. are my people. They're my people too. Yeah, they're my people too. I I mentioned this before we we got recording, but I have to say for the listeners' sake, Maggie, uh, your book is the first in a while. Uh, I I dog eared page like just a tons of tons of passages. Ah. And I even took pictures like with my phone uh, and sent them to Jessica, my my wife, my partner. And it made me think about there there are certain authors. This is the first book I've read of you. I haven't read any of your poetry. I love that this is the intro. Yes. <laughs> That's I, wild. I'm a, like yeah. a, I'm a memoir nut. I love yeah. I love an origin story. I love the tend to be like the feels of memoirs. And this is the first in a while where I really latched on to certain sentences and the, the way you use words. And, you know, clearly you're a poet, so you have a way with words. And it, it made me think of like the first time I read Truman Capote's first book, uh, Other Voices, Other Rooms. I think that's a title. And remembering thinking like, oh, my gosh, this sentence alone contains so much and I have to sit with it and think about it and reflect on it for the rest of the day. So just have to say off the bat, I felt that way with your book. Oh my gosh. That's, I think maybe the best compliment ever, you know, because it's not like I experienced all the things in your book and therefore could relate to it. Like the no. fact that you um, honed in on the sentence level for me as, as a writer and as a poet means everything because um i'm always thinking about the sentence like mm. how can i make each sentence matter and be sort of beautiful in its own way and not just be kind of like utilitarian that is sort of connective tissue that gets you from one yes you know good muscly bit to the next good muscly bit um yeah. so yeah. that thank you i'm so glad to hear that you're welcome yeah i mean i i uh it's a gift that i am sent books because I am a a thing you should know about me is that I had a book themed wedding. Oh. We are clearly, you know, if you if you're watching I can this see video, we're <laughs> yeah. we're surrounded by books. Um my wife teaches writing. We both have English literature degrees. Books are 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 our world. So I feel very lucky that that books and then books like yours are sent to me. It's 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 a it's a gift, uh, for I, sure. I love book mail. Book mail. Oh my gosh. It's the best. Sometimes best my son will come in with a little, you know, he can tell from the envelopes now. And he yes. knows some of the publisher's names. So if I get a galley or something or whatever, he'll come to the door. Mom, we've got a new New Yorker, which he takes because he likes the cartoons. Yes, and then, um, yeah, because my 10-year-old is the first one to read the New Yorker in this house. And then he he's always knows when it's like book mail. Mom, book that. mail. That's special. So I wanted to ask you, like, this book, you could make uh, this place beautiful. You have written poetry. You have written books of poets, poems, transitioning into a memoir. Now, like, looking at sort of like this from, like, sentence structure and the way that you format this, it's not, it's not a straightforward memoir. How did you decide on that piece, like, the the, the structure of it? How did you transition from, like poetry to memoir? Like, what has that felt like, that piece? Yeah. I mean, I've written essays before, so I have made it to the uh, right-hand margin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it wasn't a completely unexplored um, frontier, mm -hmm. but I haven't made it to the right-hand margin in as many pages as I had to in this book. And right. so that was one of the things I thought about first was, you know, I, I'm used to working not just because I'm a poet, but because of the kind of poet I am, my poems mm. tend to be short. Mm. I mean, I'm patting myself on the back if a poem hits page two. Mm. I am a whittler. So if I write a page of something, as I revise, it does not grow. I am not adding 
things. And right. if I am, I'm also taking twice as many things away hmm. as I'm adding. So I'm I'm really someone who's like condensing, condensing and trying to be as concise as possible. And when sort of given a general word count, which you don't have to contend with in poetry, I thought, I'm not right. sure how I'm going to get there. And I pretty quickly came around to the idea that I wouldn't um, get there by trying to do it someone else's way. (laughs) So um, I knew I was going to have to do it my way, which meant writing this memoir as a poet. And probably what that meant was going to be, it was going to be more lyrical. It was going to be piecier. It was going to have probably multiple strands that operated together. And some of what I do when I'm writing a poem is thinking about how do I enact the content in the form? So if it's like a love poem, couplets make sense, right? Like those two line stanzas, because it's kind of like standing in for that love relationship. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a really long narrative poem, maybe prose or longer stanzas or just a big rush of text might make sense. And so even with the memoir, I was like, okay, what? form, what kind of structure would make the most sense to enact the experience? Because I don't just want to tell the story of what this, what happened, right? I want the reader to understand how it felt. Mm -hmm, Like I want a sort of psychologically true form to the experience. And the experience was very kind of recursive and fragmented and cyclical. Mm. And so how do I sort of embody rumination or Mm. reflection or these kinds of things in the structure. And so returning to some of the same ideas or playing with the same titles or having sort of echoes or like idea rhymes across different parts of the book, I just played and experimented until I got to a structure that felt right to me. Mm. I love that. I love this idea of trying to reflect where you are at emotionally with your life you know you know this is a memoir this is about your life and um trying to sort of make the form reflect that that's really beautiful and it 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 makes sense to me now that i'm thinking about it there are pages where it's you come back to certain things right there's the question from a friend right that comes yeah. back and it's it's the question and then it's a new answer Right. And then, yeah, you you have a note on foreshadowing or a note, you know, and you keep coming back to these ideas and from a from a sort of reflective healing space, as you know, healing is nonlinear and it's messy. And so I love that. I I think that really it really works uh, now that I'm thinking about it. I, I love that you framed it that way. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, healing is nonlinear. Memory is nonlinear. Oh, yeah. You know, when we tell ourselves the story of our lives, we're not thinking like, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Mm. It's associative, right? So you remember something, or you hear a song, which makes you think of the time when, which makes you think of the thing when. And so it's more of a sort of web than it is a timeline. And so I think the book works a little bit more in, in in a sort of that kind of shape. PC. Yeah, yeah, PC. (laughs) What what is the? I was curious, like, what is? Because I don't think I discerned it. What is the sort of gap between the the sort of real life, like I am sort of going through this divorce, and I'm going to write this book? Um, Almost none. Okay. There's almost no gap. So the, um, I mean, the book chronicles a bunch of years sort of prior to, right? So like my yeah. kids show up on the scene, I'm in college and some of it. So it it covers like largely adult life. Yeah. Um, but I wrote the book, like the bulk of the book, about two years after mm. my divorce. But as you know, because you've read the book, there's ongoing things that are happening in the meantime, yeah. too. So So I was still sort of writing it in the middle of it. Um, Mm. You know, it was part of part of the processing. And and this seems to be a kind of theme with me is I think that I can sort of process things better if I spend time on paper with Mm. them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is the case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a for me in the past, it's been a safer outlet initially as opposed to like let me tell everyone. Twitter. 
yeah, let me post about it on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, right? It's like, I need to like, this is the first therapeutic step or whatever, cathartic step, yeah, is to like get it, get the words down on paper. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know often what I think until I've I've seen it. And then I'm like, oh, or I mean, it was interesting. I I don't I don't know that my a lot of my feelings changed a ton in the writing of the book. I did have some realizations, but I also like saw the connections between things mm. in a way as I was writing them that I'm not sure I would have come to just in my own head without having to formalize it in that way. Yeah. Mm. And that I think is useful. Yeah. How are you feeling about because this is a deeply personal, vulnerable book. You know, you you get you get deep, you get into your feels, you know, you you talk about the impact something like this happens uh or has on a family, has on mm-hmm. kids, has on love. Like it's it's hard and messy and beautiful stuff. Like how how are you feeling about it now that the book's gonna be out? you know, very shortly? Like how, how is, how are you holding that? That's a really good question. And I, I feel like I've been reaching out to a lot of uh, friends who have published memoirs before me and being like, Mm -hmm. is this normal? This is really uncomfortable and kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like I'm sort of like ripping a bandaid off, like suddenly all of this gearing up where you're talking about a thing, but not that many people have actually seen it yet. Mm. And then there's Mm. the period now where like some people have seen it. So it's like the soft opening Mm -hmm. of the thing, but not everyone's seen it. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, soon everyone will see it. And so I, I, I'm having to get comfortable with it Mm -hmm. and you know, that's, it's tricky it's tricky, but it helped actually, I, you know, when I recorded the audiobook and had to read all of it out loud, that was a kind of intense emotional experience. And it also was a, a good experience for me because I had the experience of reading so much, like in one chunk of time. Yeah. And I got to sit there and think, okay, I'm really proud of this book. So as scared as I am in a way to sort of be like handing it to people like, well, here's all of this stuff. And a lot of it you don't know because Mm. I've been pretty quiet about a lot of things or I've talked in metaphor (laughs) for years without actually saying a whole lot directly. Um, So as as sort of like naked as it feels to be handing a piece of your life to people that they might not anticipate finding and seeing, Mm. spending time with the sentences has been helpful because I'm happy with the sentences. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so as long, I'm like, you know, actually I'm happy with the writing of this book. Like I think I built the book I wanted to build. Mm. And um, I always say I'm not for everyone. Who is? And who is exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I say that all the time. I'm like the way I dress, the way I look, the, my sense of humor, my taste in music, although everyone should like pavement. Agreed. Um, everything, you know, everything about any of us really is not for everyone. And I think some of us lean into that um, a little more than others, but I could only write the book I wanted to write. Yeah. I'm really happy and satisfied with it. And then the rest of it is not really any of my business. Mm. Like in some ways, what happens once the sort of like door opens and the books fly out and people reach up and pluck one out of the air, whatever relationship they have to that book has nothing to do with me yeah. ultimately. Cause I already made the thing. So my, my job now outcomes. is to make something else, letting go of the outcomes. It's huge yeah, and Buddhist. hard. Yeah. Super hard, especially as creators, as artists, right? Like you care deeply about a thing and you spent you spend many, many years doing a thing, right? And there is a certain, like, you know, like, or I'll just say from my frame of reference, like after reading this book, I know that this will be profoundly transformative for many people because mm-hmm. they've been through a similar thing and they've and that's it, right? That's that's the that's the empathy connection that's like so crucial in our worlds, right? Like we experience a thing. I say this endlessly on the show, but like so important. We experience a thing, and when we're ready, hopefully when we're actually ready and feel like protective enough to like share that sharing that experience allows others in, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. Like we have to let go of like how it's going to be taken in because that is out of our control. Yeah. 
And that's the tricky part. And I know that I think you mentioned in the book that you're a person who gives a lot of fucks. (laughs) I do. I give a lot of fucks too. Yeah. How do you, how do you hold that as a person? Like I, I am, I am like giving all the fucks. I, I try to, I'm, I'm like carrying a lot because I care so deeply recovering people, please are all that stuff. Right. Yep. And then you're, you're also saying that like, I have to let that go. Like how, how do, how do those two things? It's, such a struggle. Yeah, I know. I, I I say my factory setting is is GAF. I I just never managed to get the D in front of it. I don't know how people how people do that. I really do try. Yeah. I think logically I'm there, but trying to translate the knowledge that it shouldn't matter or ultimately mm. doesn't matter, it doesn't always translate to the feeling of it not. Mattering. And I'm telling my kids that all the time, like, don't worry about that test. You won't remember that in five or 10 years, or don't worry about what that person says. That person doesn't mean anything. And you won't even remember that they exist until you see them at your reunion. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and my daughter will say like, I know that logically, but it doesn't make it feel better in the moment. And so Mm. both of those things are true. Like you can GAF, and also know that you shouldn't necessarily need to GAF. But yeah, being being a big feeler and a creator at the same time is uh, is tricky business. But I, I also think the two of them for me are kind of inseparable because probably if I gave fewer fucks, I wouldn't be a poet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I would yeah. have done something else. Yeah. Because uh, GA fuck, as I'm, I'm going to say, <laughs> GA fuck. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a vulnerable it's first of all it's 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 vulnerable and courageous to like be big hearted and and care deeply enough to try to enact change right to try to transform and influence and all of that stuff like and with that like we also have to figure out what our boundaries are and what fills us up and what doesn't and and that's uh i think that in in my case as a 40 year old 41 year old human that changes day to day. And that piece of it is hard too. Yeah. I mean, uh, you said recovering people pleaser and I'm like, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting as part of like social and emotional learning at both of my kids' schools, they're always talking about empathy, which I'm very glad for, because I do think in general on balance, most people need that part of themselves dialed up, like way up. Agreed. I think me personally, I need it dialed down for my own health, safety, protection, boundary setting, well-being, yes. GAFness. Yes. Um, and so I'm it's it's a sort of counterintuitive thing to try to tell yourself to like identify less with others, project less of your own experience onto yeah. what others might be thinking or feeling, take things yes. less personally. Mm-hmm. Um because empathy is so important, but it can also become sort of outsized and and for some people kind of unmanageable. It can be become a manipulation, even if we're not aware of it. Like yeah. that, that has happened to me as someone who has had to, because I, I feel like anything that is really, I mean, empathy is a radical idea and it takes a lot of uh, discernment and clarity and and understanding of context and boundaries and assumptions and bias and all this stuff and that is ongoing right and 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 so if we're not sort of aware of those things and being curious about those things yeah it becomes an imbalanced force in our lives yeah for the sure. floodgates are just open <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and that's yeah. that's I mean and I'm I'd be curious to see how that connects to you being a checky listy little one. Um, because I know for me, like growing up in an environment that didn't always feel safe and being so sensitive, I learned to just like armor up and like kind of shut down at times and not be in my feelings because it was too uncomfortable or too unsafe, didn't have the safety of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when the floodgates opened, it was like a fucking mess and terrifying, right? Because not until like my 20s that I like, oh, there's a person who sees me, you know, like, yes. so it's, so how about, how about you? Like little perfectionist, little, little <laughs> checky listy Maggie, like, how does that connect to the, the big, big feels GAF 
Maggie? Yeah. You know, I think my instinct is to go into my thoughts instead of into my feelings. Um, Thoughts feel safer. Thoughts feel more logical. Thoughts feel cooler instead of hotter. Um, Thoughts are probably more in a box than feelings. Thoughts are 100% in a box. And so if I can just think hard enough at a problem, if Mm. I can, I mean, even sort of the process of writing this book, I really thought, you know, very naively, if I just spend enough time with this experience, I will solve it somehow Mm. for myself. Like if I spend enough time with parts of my life that are causing me pain, if I spend enough time with sort of mysteries, then I will solve those mysteries. I will end the suffering I'm experiencing because of those mysteries. And, oh, lo and behold, we can just, you know, sew that up and move on. Just yeah. not how life works. But yeah, I, I tend to default to thinking very quickly and then sort of talking about feelings, but in an intellectualized way. And I'm very grateful to have a therapist who will call me on that. Mm -hmm. And I write about that a little in the book. She's like, you say you're sad. I don't see sad. Mm -hmm. Or you say you're angry. But what I hear you doing is using feelings vocabulary, but I'm not actually getting that from you right now. Like I hear you intellectualizing this which is more comfortable. It is more comfortable for sure. Yeah. Cause the, the, the knowing and naming the feelings I was recently listening to like a 10% happier podcast with Brene Brown on this. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how us humans can really only accurately discern three human emotions, happiness, sadness, and uh, pissed off. And she was explaining some of the differences between jealousy and envy and how we often like use those incorrectly. And she gave a great example of, of um, what she describes as resentment. And so like she's had a long day, she comes home, they're going to be hosting some people and she sees her husband plop down on the couch watching the football game. And she's like, fuck him. Like, why isn't, and she describes it as resentment, but then she kind of takes a step back and realize like, oh, that's envy. I want to be on the couch watching football and not doing anything. Right. Mm. And so like that work is hard. And a piece of that is like the intellectual, but it's also like connected to the, the feelings bit where it's like, what is it like to feel in our bodies? And what's that like? And I know for me, I've struggled with that immensely because i've had a long history of just like my body is a tool i i have to punish it like you know i and i battled anorexia in my 20s mm. and almost died and so like the body piece has been a hard thing to connect to feeling yeah for sure yeah it's messy it makes a lot of sense i mean i i think too even feeling angry i have to check myself and think okay no, no, no. That's like a mask. That's like a mask mm, feeling. Mm. Like there's something underneath that. What is it? It's almost yes. always hurt. Mm. It's almost always feeling um, like disregarded. You know, if I came home in that situation, I would feel angry, which yes. I guess an, anger and resentment are maybe sort of cousins in that in that sense. But and the anger would be from like the hurt of like you didn't think enough about me to plan helping. Yeah. Like you're just assuming I'm going to do this on my own. And that yeah. makes me feel disregarded, which is mm-hmm. a hurt feeling. But it's like drilling down underneath all of these sort of like sedimentary layers of like, okay, I think I feel this. Let me have a conversation with myself. No, no, no. It's it's deeper than that. Okay. Okay. I'm at the next level. Let me have, no, no, no. Actually, it's deeper than that. Like what is the actual core feeling of like all of this stuff. Yeah. And I do think most of the time it's like hurt or fear. Um, fear is a big one for sure. Fear is a big one. Insecurity is a big one. Yeah. Which is fear. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember what something um, my son said when he was maybe three. He said something about feeling embarrassed at school. And mm-hmm. I I wasn't even sure, like, well, how can a three-year-old feel embarrassed at preschool? And I asked him, what do you think that means? Because I wanted to hear him explain it so I knew if he was just misusing. Yes. You know, the child said alligator for elevator. So what do I know about 
embarrassment. And he said, it means, um, it means scared. Mm. And, and it does like, if you get embarrassed, that embarrassment of feeling sort of like people are looking at me and I did something wrong or they're judging me, the core feeling tunneling down underneath it is fear yeah. of being sort of found out or found out, caught seen. at being imperfect. <laughs> yeah. Seen in our fallibility. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes a three-year-old can teach you more about feelings than you're able to articulate for yourself. I... 100%. That that is that is such a good reminder, right? I and I've said it before on the show, but like the fact that being open enough to learn from a 3-year-old or learn from an 83-year-old, wherever yeah. we are in life, like I feel like there's learning and perspective and discovery in all things and all humans. Maybe oh, not a Trump, maybe not a Trump supporter, but like no, everyone no. else. Not everyone has things to teach us, or yes. at least, or there are lessons there, but um, there not the lessons. ones they think they're teaching us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How I I did want to ask how how are Violet and Rhett? How are they doing? They're good. They're like, you know, they're thriving kids. Yeah. So yeah, they're great, and they good. um are honestly the sort of best conversationalists, funniest really just like most open-hearted coolest kids. So I I feel like if I if I'm going to sort of like have two people in my rowboat uh for life, they're they're the people I want in my boat. Mm. Lucky me, they're the people I get in my boat. Yeah. You lucked out there. I totally hit the jackpot. Yeah. I was Jessica and I have been rewatching Seinfeld and have you seen a lot, a lot of Seinfeld? Honestly, b- back in the original Seinfeld days, probably some when it was actually on network TV, yeah. but not in a very long time. So it just, I mean, this is not connected, but it just made me think of there's an episode where uh, Jerry and, and, and Elaine and, and um, George go and visit a friend's new baby. And when they go first and they look down and the baby is like super ugly right? I, just, I think they're I like <laughs> oh my god like what do we say right and, and kramer comes in and he like freaks out you know it's just like uh it makes i don't know those are those are, those are the uncontrollables right right they're the uncontrollable um, i'm actually kind of i wondered if i'm like is he going to go to the kenny rogers roasters episode because it's one of the only ones i remember uh-huh but yeah. no no yeah. it wasn't that one the ugly baby i'm i wasn't uh inferring that Rhett or violet were ugly babies or <laughs> no, ugly they're... children they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Yeah. Most mostly on the inside. That that's like that's the important that's the best, stuff. The best. Yeah. Bits. yeah. 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 One of the many things that I connected to in your book is this idea of you mentioned nesting dolls a few times, right? And I think I've been thinking about this the, for the past few years. This idea of like, for me, going back to past versions of myself, especially as a child, where mm-hmm. um, I was surviving, where I was armored up and where I wasn't in many ways allowed to be my full self. And so part of my sort of healing and recovery has been like going back to that version of me and be like, I love you little known, you know, you're, you're the best and you're doing the best that you could. Right. And I, I, I think that's so crucial, this idea of like us carrying those versions of ourselves Cause I think it's like ultimately a deep empathy, right? It's like, recognizing that all all of the the stories that we've been through all of these moments that we've had in life are are here within us and they're valid even if they've been super painful and led to suffering right it's all sort of essential yeah and i wanted to ask like what what is a past self version of you that conjures up joy and happiness when you think about I don't know, teenage Maggie or, or sort of, uh, a a version of you yourself that feels when you think about it, it feels like, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You know, honestly, most of them, 
Most Good. of them, like that. me with my little Laura Ingalls Wilder braids playing yes. in the creek in my, you know, in the backyard of my parents' house with a freckle face and covered in mud. Mm-hmm. Um, high school me with my bad coffee and clove cigarettes and <laughs> Sylvia yes. Plath and that makes um, sense. That Liz makes sense Fair you, CD. You smoked clove, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. most versions of myself. When I think about them, I can, I can sort of like mother them in my mind, you know, and I feel really tenderly toward them. And even the ones that kind of give me pain when I think about them, like me in my mid twenties brings me a little bit of pain Mm. because I think, oh my gosh, that woman was so insecure, like just really was just a very afraid human being. Um, And I, I think God, all those good years that you could have just, DGAF'd a little more mm-hmm. and you just GAF'd yourself into like in total insomnia um, for a lot of, a lot of what could have been really beautiful years if you'd gotten out of your own head a little yeah. bit more. Mm. Um, but that's the, you know, it's, I don't know how much, how much we're thinking about self-compassion as much as we're thinking about like compassion toward others. And I think about that all the time. Sure. Like, you know, and and the idea that that it's not self indulgent or um, like it's not self pity no. to think about suffering you're you know going through now or some version of you went through in the past and trying to sort of give yourself like cut yourself some slack. Yeah. Um. You know, and maybe that's where a lot of this sort of reparenting. Mm-hmm. talk is coming from now yeah. it's like if you could talk to your childhood self and s- tell them the things you needed someone to tell you then what would that mm. thing be and 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 maybe that's useful to kind of go back and and give yourself a little love years later it's super useful and i you know we have to do we have we really i think have to do that before we can like properly wholly do that for others i find mm. mm-hmm. because that work is uh, about learning who we are, trusting who we are, loving who we are, understanding who we are, what fills us up, et cetera. And like, if we're not doing that for ourselves, like how can we really do that for others? <laughs> right. I mean, I honestly have no idea. And yet if you asked me, I'd say I've been much better at loving other people my entire life than I have been at extending that same grace mm-hmm. Most toward GIF myself. People are. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. apparently you can actually <laughs> not not extend yourself a lot of grace and yeah. still and still be giving it to other people. It's just not the healthiest way to do it for yourself. It's not. And I would even argue that like you can still like the GF people find a way to do it and like it be met with, you know, beauty and kindness and all that stuff. But I would argue that if we do it for ourselves, we can do it even better for others. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And with more peace. Just yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot less like frantic trying. Yeah. 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 I think there's also um, you know, you obviously mentioned like grief uh as part of this story, your your story. There is grief in in the sort of looking back at our past versions of herself, right? Like the grief of like you reflecting on 20-year-old Maggie, right? And being like, ah, I wish, or I could have, you know, like there is grief inlaid in that too that should be recognized. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I don't, it's it's hard not to sort of treat life like a choose-your-own-adventure book and think mm-hmm. if I had only, you know, when mm-hmm. presented with the cave, <laughs> had yeah. turned to page 72 instead and decided to go, a different way, you know, what if, what if, what if would have happened? And I think that's part of the self-compassion piece too, is like, mm-hmm. like you said earlier, you did the best with what you had. Yes. You know, I made the best decisions at the time with the information I had in front of me and the the most whole version of myself that I could be at the time. Mm-hmm. I made the best decisions that I could. And maybe I would make different decisions now if presented with the same choices in front of the cave. I might choose a different way. Yeah. That swamp does not look that appealing, you know, at 46. Um, But again, you can't, 
it's like looking back at my first book of poems and thinking, well, I would have written all of those differently at 46 because I'm a different writer now sure. and a different thinker. But it's a time capsule of the writer I was in my 20s, that first book, mm -hmm. just like all of the decisions and relationships I had up to this point are all sort of time capsuled in in those eras. And we don't get to just like hit reset and do it all over. We have to live with the choices that earlier iterations of ourselves made and and sort of treat those versions with as much care as we can. And forgiveness, like self-forgiveness yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a gift to say like, look at how much you've changed. Like that is a beautiful reflection of like what I believe we should be doing, changing. And with that comes grief. And with that comes like understanding that like, yeah, 20 year old me or 20 year old Maggie had only so much context or only so much uh, like to look through, to look at, you know, and, and that's how it should be, right? Like as we gain experience, as we sort of, I had a writer friend, Andrew Smith, um, who used to say like being a good writer is learning how to bump into stuff, uh. meaning like experience and fuck up and and you know be vulnerable in the face of like trying new things right and and stuff like that and i i think about that often in terms of this stuff yeah yeah absolutely i mean yeah. i think probably checky listy maggie would have said being a good kid is about avoiding bumping into things mm -hmm. right like staying in line doing what you're supposed to be doing yeah and there's a certain level of like, frankly, misbehavior that has to happen in order to tap into anything good and decent creatively. I mean, it's yeah. all play and experimentation. So if you're not willing to get messy, it, you're probably not going to come up with anything that interesting. Agreed. Yeah. Checky listy Maggie has to <laughs> figure out what clove cigarettes taste like. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> luckily, I, I think it's not an accident that I started writing poems around that time. Like, oh, oh my gosh. Makes so much yeah. sense. What a cliche. <laughs> I know. I know. I we all it. are, though. That's we that's, all. That's, we are, every truly. teenager is, is one cliche or another. I just watched The Absolutely. Breakfast Club for the first time with Violet. And oh my gosh, speaking so of good. teenage cliches, I'm like, yes. yeah, well, you know, we're not all that neatly compartmentalized, but maybe there's a little, like they say at the end, there's a little bit of all of them and all of us. Truly. Truly, there is. I have this written in front of me because I I wanted to get it right. But I, I mentioned at the top, right, these certain sentences in the book that really moved me. And this is one of them. You say, the thing about this life, if we knew nothing of what was missing, what has been removed, it would look full and beautiful. Tell me what you mean by that. I have my own interpretations. Like, what is that? What does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, that's from a chapter about birding and about the idea. Yeah. The, the idea that if we, if we, if we didn't know what, what birds sounded like, we'd think the trees were singing if we didn't mm. know what birds were. And um, if we didn't know what was missing from our lives, they would look full. Right. I mean, and my life does. I mean, if I look around, I'm like, well, I'm doing work that I love. I live with my two children, my very lazy and very sweet dog, no plants Portly. I can keep alive, unlike you. <laughs> um, I'm close to my parents. I'm close to my sisters. I mean, from the outside, if you didn't have the before picture, right, mm. if you only mm. have the after picture, I think about this a lot. If you only have the after picture of a lot of people's lives after even really terrible upheavals mm -hmm. the after picture still looks really full and beautiful yeah. like that's a that's a damn good life that person has mm. and only if you then align it and lay it side by side and do a comparison with the before picture do you actually see oh i see what's missing between yeah. you know it's like those old a uh, little activity books where they show you two different pictures and they ask you to circle the differences. Yes, like, oh, this yeah. ball is blue instead of red or the clock is mm -hmm. at three o'clock instead of nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. And only if you did a side-by-side -side comparison or before and after comparison, would you, would you sense the absence? So it's for me, a reminder to myself that, that my life is whole as it is, even though it doesn't have all the same pieces in it that it had say 10 years ago yeah it has other new pieces too and that's 
you know, something sometimes we forget when when we're doing the before and after comparison is like, but look, there's also more stuff. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, I love this idea of like 10 years ago, the wholeness of me or how I sort of conceived of being holy me is different than what it is now, right? And that's, I think that's a crucial mindset to have. Yeah. I mean, I think about in however many years when my kids are like out of the house and off to college and I'll think, oh my gosh, how sad I'm all on my own. But if you looked at just what I'll be doing at that time, I hope, knock wood, it's all wonderful stuff. And maybe I'll get to travel and there will be other opportunities I have because I'm not actively parenting two people in this house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And only because of the before picture would we think, mm. oh, that's sort of sad. Her children aren't there anymore. So <laughs> I try to keep that in mind. Yeah, maybe you'll go back to clove cigarettes. Who knows? Who knows? Oh what my the gosh, your holds. Never again. Although every <laughs> once in a while, if I'm at a show or something and I pass through a little cloud of it, I it's you know it's like so Mazzy good. Star just starts playing like in my mind, uh-huh. and yeah. yeah, it's it takes me way back. Yeah. Mm. How how is it? How important it is to you to have you know as an artist, as a mother, as a friend, like safe people. Like what, what do safe people mean to you? Well, it's clearly incredibly important because I still live in the town where I was born. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, something about me is that I live 20 minutes from the, from the hospital where I was born and my mom was born in that hospital and my kids were born in that hospital. And I have Sunday dinner with my sisters and brothers-in-law and nieces and nephews and at my dining room table, I ate at as a child, the Checky Listy table. Yeah. Um, same furniture, same kitchen, um, the Creek that I used to play in my kids play in, you know, so it's incredibly important that kind of continuity to Mm me. Um, I'm a really rooted person. And I think in some ways how rooted I am in place and with people like my sense of community Mm -hmm. is what allows me to be less rooted in other aspects of my life. Mm-hmm. It feels a lot less scary being like self-employed and a, and a single parent when I'm in the same place, in the same house, on the same street, doing rad- you know pretty much the same work, seeing the same people. And so the constants make the variables manageable. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Rooted and grounded. Yeah. I love that. That is important. So important. Yeah. Um, for our self-actualization for our wholeness, right? I think so too. I mean, I know it can seem limiting. People are like, you never left. And I'm like, you know, my people are here. It's not that I am just like so attached to central Ohio that I can't imagine living anyplace else. I mean, frankly, after the last election cycle, it's becoming a more untenable place to live. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. And raise kids. Like it is, it is a, it is a growingly untenable place to live. Um, but you know, I have kids who are in school here and I have parents who are aging here and I have aunts and uncles and cousins and Mm. it would take a whole lot, um, to get me to go someplace else while my people are here. Yeah. That makes sense. So your memoir, you could make this place beautiful, uh, great title. And I know you sort of went back and forth on that amazing title. What's a takeaway? What's a transformation you want in the reader? I have to order them to be transformed. Yes, you have to transform every <laughs> reader. That is your that is your responsibility as a writer. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know if I can order a transformation in a human being. You know, it's funny. I guess I guess this conversation is sort of leading me to think it's really about about self-compassion and extending grace to oneself for not being able to anticipate every hiccup in your life, for not being able to see a mile down the road and know everything. And maybe not even being even in the middle of a situation, maybe not always handling things the way that you wish you had, you know? Uh, You know, a lot of the book is is about forgiveness, I think. And maybe the biggest component of that is self-forgiveness. So if somebody reads this book, whether they've had any of the experiences I've had or not, I hope they can sort of like overlay some of their own 
painful experiences or changes or things that kind of caught them off guard and maybe give themselves some grace Mm. and feel kind of seen and understood like, okay, I'm not alone in this. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's what books do for me is making me feel like sort of seen and understood in, yes. in my humanness. Like even if my experience doesn't perfectly overlap and align, that there are things about this person's story or the way they're describing it or something they felt that makes me feel not so alone yeah. Which to me is such a gift when I'm reading. So if I could make somebody feel not so alone for five minutes, that's, you know, that's not nothing. I think it's everything. Uh, yeah. You know, books are portals to empathy in that way. Um, yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Let's start wrapping it up and we'll plug the book and where the links and all that stuff in a second. But we do always wrap up the show, Maggie, talking about our empathy heroes. So folks mm. in our lives who are, empathetic, compassionate, folks who are help root us, ground us, etc., um, could be characters from stories even, or from movies. Uh, I will go first to give you a moment to reflect on your empathy hero. My empathy hero this week is uh, the writer Angela Davis. Um, and this quote I love uh, very deeply as a GAF person. Angela says, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Mm. A word. Mm -hmm. All the time. No breaks. No days off. No. And that's, that's real. That's the work. That's the I mean, work. Some rest. Certainly. Maybe some rest. Some recharge, but yeah. yeah, every day. Shut your eyes now and then. Yeah. Yeah. How about um, you? You know, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I am remembering a time, and this is just my son in a nutshell. So I'm going to say Rhett. Okay. I'm remembering a time when he came home from school and was sort of saying that someone was misbehaving and sort of hitting people at mm. school. And instead of saying, and he hurt me and I was so mad and I can't believe it, he said, he must, um, he must feel really bad. Like mm. he must be hurting. He must, something must be wrong because yeah. otherwise why would he be, be behaving in this way? Yeah. And the fact that at his age, that his place, his thinking was not about blame or even thinking, how is this kid's behavior affecting me or our class or anything? His first impulse was what's going on inside him that is making this come out of him in this way. And I don't know that most of us as adults are that are, are always sort of tapping into that. Like, and I will fully admit if somebody is an asshole to me, I will immediately go to like, first, I'm like, what is wrong? Like, how dare they behave mm -hmm. to me in that way? Yeah. And, and his little voice in my mind, can I say asshole? I just said asshole. I mean, We've been saying fuck for the last I guess it's hour, fine. Yeah. So. so that's like downgraded. That's like downgraded, right? That's right. Asshole's um, like a, a soft curse word. It's soft. It's so yeah. soft. Um <laughs> and assholes are soft. I mean, they're just, soft. You know, it's genetic. fine. It's yeah, fine. Just the body part, you know. So yeah, just having that voice in my head to remind me, it's almost that same impulse to like, okay, what's below the feeling? Mm -hmm. Like what's below the action? Like yeah. if somebody comes at me with a lot of force or is defensive, or is being passive aggressive, or just aggressive aggressive, if I'm getting something from that, even if it's somebody on Twitter, not someone in my life, but mm -hmm. someone who comes at me in a way, I, I'm, I sort of tap into that impulse. And I think, okay, what's underneath this, that person must be in some sort of pain, like they, they're, they're not in in touch with whatever's going on with them. Not yeah. that it justifies it or gives them the right to behave of badly course. toward others, but it it like helps me extend a little grace and also not take it personally and sort of like walk away from it. <laughs> yeah. That's so important. I it's imagination is a huge part of empathy, right? Oh, enormous. Yeah. 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 I I lead empathy workshops from time to time and one section of it is about the the people in our lives who bug the shit out of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the exercise is to like conjure up an archetype or an actual person and then somehow using our imagination create more context for that person as opposed mm -hmm. to like the oppositional foe that's 
you know, out to get us, right? Because usually that's not the case. No. Usually no. there's, as as Rhett reminds us, there's more to it. Yep. Yeah. There's there's stuff going on with them that we're not privy to. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Maggie, what a joy this has been. Uh, oh, for me too. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Where can listeners, so this will be out, I, th- I, I don't remember the exact date, but right around the time your book comes out. Where can people order the book, connect with you, all that good stuff? Um, I am still, you know, hanging on on social media, even as platforms are weird. I'm at Maggie Smith Poet uh, because I'm not the dame. So that makes it a little easier to find me. Uh, Maggie Smith Poet is also my web address. Um, I have a substat called For Dear Life that I'm always writing and and sort of linking up book stuff on there too. And I would encourage people to pick up the book at their local indie bookstore because goodness gracious, they need, they need our support and, uh, indie bookstores make our lives better in a way that giant, uh, chains that we don't really have personal contact with do not. So through them or through bookshop.org, which mm-hmm. puts some proceeds toward indie bookstores locally across the country, yeah. Um, I always encourage people to do things that way. Yeah. Yeah. And listener, uh, on the Feely Human website, feelyhuman.co slash bookshop, um, we have a list of books that have been recommended by Feely Humans and then books by Yumi Empathy authors or Yumi Empathy guests. So uh, Maggie's book will be on that list um, linked from bookshop.org. So, but yeah, if you have a local independent bookshop, Make sure to go and ask for the book, buy it there. Um, it's crucial as someone who worked at an independent bookshop many years ago. They're the lifeblood of our hearts, I think. They are. They're one of our third places, you know, other than like, mm. yeah, home or yeah. work or school. It's like, you know, community, community glue. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you, Maggie. This was such a joy, such a delight. Thank you for writing your beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh.